Today we're continuing our look at what Scripture reveals to us about these I am statements that Jesus made in the Gospel of John. We began this study just a few weeks ago, and we're continuing it today, uh, where, where Christ reveals to us his divinity, where Christ reveals to us who he is. And this morning as we're continuing our study, we're looking at John chapter 8, and we're going to pick up at verse 48. And in this portion of Scripture, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. It's a very clear, very definitive statement that he made that we're going to be looking at today. And we'll also be looking at the ways in which people reacted to him making that statement. So if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 8, we'll pick up at verse 48. And I'm going to read right down to verse 59. John 8, starting with verse 48. This is what it says in this portion of God's word. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, He will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at your word together today. We're grateful for the opportunity that you give us to do so. We know, Lord, that, again, we could be spending this time doing anything under the sun. We could could be sleeping in bed. We could be doing something recreational. We could be doing something that is along the lines of a hobby or, or whatever it may be. But yet you've impressed upon our heart the commitment and the desire to gather together here and to worship you. And to study your word together and by your grace and through the investment that you make into us through your spirit and through your word to help us to grow in our walk with you. And so, Lord, we commit this time to your care and we pray that right now you'd help us to put all the cares of the world aside, all the things that typically flood our thinking, that we'd put those things aside so that we could focus just for this brief time on the teaching of your word and that we would grow in our walk with you as a result. We seek to glorify you, Lord. We thank you for this time now. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I had 
Two experiences uh, very recently, really both of these were this past week, one earlier in the week and one toward the end of the week. And both experiences were with my daughters, but both experiences had me thinking a lot about time. Uh, My daughter Hannah and I were together and we came across a series of historical pictures And I'm a big fan of studying history. I love studying history. I know some of you do as well. And uh, I came across this collection of historical pictures that someone had taken the time to expertly colorize. And what I was fascinated about with that, sometimes I've seen pictures that are older that have been colorized, that really it just looks a little too pastel to look real. It looks like all they did was, was put makeup on the people that are in the pictures. But these pictures were done so well that they had essentially taken pictures that some of which were from the first half of the 1800s when photography as we know it was in its infancy and they colorized it in such a way that these pictures looked like they could have been taken today. So it was amazing to be able to look at that. We were fascinated that something, some of those pictures that were about 170 years old, maybe a few years even, even older than that, looked like they were current. So it had us thinking about time. Um, And then a little bit later in the week, my daughter Julia and I were the only two home. And, uh, you know, I don't know what you think my TV tastes or my my entertainment tastes are, but I can assure you they are slightly different than my 13-year-old daughter. All right? Slightly. Not much, but slightly. Um, And so the two of us were home together, and we decided, hey, do you want to sit down and maybe watch something on TV? Isn't it fun to try and sit down and figure out something that you want to watch together with other people, especially when it's me and her? And we're kind of looking at each other and we thought, what are we going to pick? What are we going to compromise on? And eventually what we picked was a, uh, an episode of Jeopardy. When I discovered she likes Jeopardy, I didn't realize this. She said, oh, I like Jeopardy. I said, oh, I love Jeopardy. Let's watch Jeopardy. And so we streamed an episode of Jeopardy, but I could tell it wasn't super recent. So I looked at the date on it. And uh, it was from 2002, and they made it available online. And so I was like, all right, well, let's watch it, you know, and it was interesting. And uh, we we competed against each other. We kept track on our hands. You could ask her what the score was, but thankfully, I I won. And uh, she looked at me afterward, and she goes, you know, if I had been alive as long as you have, I think I would have known more of those answers. That was her response. If I had been alive as long as you have, I would have known more of those answers. So I bring those things up because when you look at John chapter 8, which we just read together, you have Jesus stunning people with a statement that he makes that relates to time. And the statement that he makes reveals that he has existed forever. He's existed Forever. Now, when we look at this passage, and we'll, we'll dissect it a piece at a time here, but this passage contains one of Christ's clearest statements about his divinity and his eternal nature. And he also makes the path to abundant life in the present and eternal life in the, you know, going few, uh, forward. He makes that very clear in this portion of John's gospel. So what did he say about these things that made those truths so evident? Let me show you a few things here. First off, Jesus reveals in this passage of Scripture that he is the remedy for death. Let me reread just the first few verses. In verse 48, it says this. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory, 
There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Jesus is the remedy for death. Now, how often have you heard someone referred to as a good Samaritan? Isn't that something that's just part of our vernacular? Whether you're somebody that spends time reading scripture or not, that's probably a phrase that would creep into your your language just because you speak English. In our culture, uh, we tend to think of the word Samaritan as a very positive term. But that wasn't necessarily the case during the time of Christ's earthly ministry. And you could actually see that here in this portion of Scripture. At that time, the Samaritans were resented by the Jewish people because of their mixed heritage and because of their adaptation of certain Jewish religious traditions. And so in this portion of Scripture, when Jesus is being called a Samaritan by this group of people, they were doing so to insult him. They were doing so to dismiss his teaching. This was an insult in the context in which it was given. They also accused him of being demon-possessed. Now, why did they do that? Why would they call him a Samaritan to insult him and then accuse him of being demon-possessed? Well, many people, and I'm certain you've seen this and experienced this, but many people, when confronted with truth they don't want to hear, they do their best to, to attack or discredit the messenger. Have you seen that take place? They, you, you know, the, the tactic is you attack or try and discredit the messenger. So if the authority of the messenger could be called into question, the message itself can be dismissed a little bit easier. Now, earlier in John chapter 8, you have Jesus making it abundantly clear that the people that he was speaking to were not as spiritually mature as they like to tell themselves they were. And as you can imagine, they took great offense to him saying this. This wasn't something that sat well with them. This wasn't something that they said, oh, I'm so glad that he told us this confrontational and abrasive truth, right? Not long ago, I actually saw this take place not that long ago, something very similar. Um, This same exact principle of attacking the messenger. I happened to be leading a meeting in another part of the state where I was trying to help a struggling church. There was a church that's struggling and and uh, they reached out for some assistance. And so they're one of several groups that I had, I had met with recently. And uh, instead of addressing the obvious issues that were present in the church that I thought were very clear, um, one of the members of that congregation spent a considerable amount of time during that meeting attacking the character of a former pastor. Now, I happen to know personally the person that they were attacking and can attest to the fact that he is a person of high character. He's a very genuinely kind, godly man. But he was being attacked. His character was being attacked in the meeting. And so I encouraged them to please stop doing that and also made sure to tell them, I know that man. And I know that what you're saying isn't accurate. That has never been my experience with this man. He wasn't the issue with the church. But why was somebody doing that to him? Well, they were doing that to him in in order to deflect from the obvious they tried to cut him apart so as not to deal with the issues they were dealing with. And this was, this was the, the tactic that was being used against Jesus in this portion of Scripture. Instead of dealing with the truth he was telling them, they decide to attack him for telling them the truth. But you have Jesus confronting the falsehoods that were entrenched in the mindset of the group of people that were attacking him. He confronts those falsehoods with truth. And he makes it clear to them that he is not demon-possessed. 
On the contrary, what he also says is that he was honoring God the Father while this crowd was effectively dishonoring the Father by dishonoring Jesus, who is one with the Father. And unfortunately, this, is, this was evidence that the spirituality that this, this group seemed to believe that they had, uh, their spiritual uh, heft that they tried to kind of carry around, it was false. They claimed to be spiritually alive, but their words and their actions demonstrated the fact that they were spiritually dead. And that's what Jesus was trying to help them to understand. Now, again, this was offensive to them to hear. And here's the other thing. I don't know where uh, all of us are spiritually in this room. I know some of us in this room very well. And some of you in this room I don't know very well. Um, But one thing that I'm convinced of is that the truth of the gospel typically offends us before we tend to feel healed by it. So Jesus is actually doing this group a great favor by offending them and not just patting them on the back and saying, everything you believe is fine, just believe whatever you want to believe. He's confronting their falsehood with truth, and he's taking the risk to offend them, not because he wants harm to come to them. He's doing them the favor of trying to open their eyes to be able to see the truth. But this group of people was spiritually dead, and unfortunately, many of them chose to persist in their mindset of spiritual death. They did not embrace the truth he was claiming. Jesus is the remedy for death, both spiritually and physically. Now, in this passage, he makes this comment. He says this, and we read it just a moment ago, and I'll I'll reread it for us here. But in this passage, he said, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That's the way he phrases it here. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, in making this statement, Jesus was proclaiming the fact that he is what this dying world needs. Now, when you're still a slave to sin, like this crowd that was, uh, was confronting Jesus or talking to Jesus, like they were demonstrating that they were, when you're still a slave to sin, you're in a spot where you're doomed to die. Meaning, you'll spend your time on this earth governed by a mindset of death. Governed by a mindset that's stuck in temporary things that don't have eternal value. Governed by an earthly perspective, a fleshly perspective. And then unfortunately, then from there, a person who's governed by death goes on from their earthly experience to then going on to their eternity, which is one of separation from God. And so Jesus is confronting this, again, not to beat these people down, but to ultimately show them the light so that they don't need to live or persist in spiritual death. But here, they were living this this kind of doomed-to-die mindset, spending their time on this earth, governed by a perspective, governed by a mindset that has no lasting value. But those who have genuine faith in Christ what they end up doing is they demonstrate their faith by keeping his teaching. And Jesus makes it clear in this passage that those that have such a faith that they actually keep his teaching, they demonstrate that they have moved from death to life in Christ, a life that he grants to those who trust in him. So again, Jesus makes a statement. He says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Well, why would anyone keep his word? Well, we would only keep his word because he empowers us to keep it and he opens up our eyes to value it. 
And that happens when we come to faith in Christ and he gives us a brand new mindset, a brand new perspective. He is the remedy for death, the death that we were experiencing before we were made spiritually alive, but also the remedy for death in the physical sense, in the sense that Christ tells us that those who know him will be raised from death, granted a glorified body, and live in his presence for all eternity. But this was a very hard teaching For those who rejected Christ in this particular context, it was a very hard teaching for them to accept. They did not want to accept it because they had some idols that they were wrestling with. They idolized their teachers. They idolized their traditions. They idolized their prophets. Now, ironically, it was Jesus that the prophets were doing their best to point toward in their writings because Jesus, who is God the Son, is by nature greater than every prophet and greater than every teacher. And so you have Jesus illustrating that as the scripture goes on, as we get down to verse 52 and verse 53, where it shows us that Jesus is greater than the prophets. Look at what it says there. Verse 52 says, the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Now, before we look at the words that Christ says in response to this, let's just pause there for a second. But have you ever been asked the question, who do you think you are? (laughs) And does that ever come with like a nice connotation? (laughs) You know, if somebody asks you, who do you think you are? I mean, you can almost hear in that inflection, right? Who do you think you are? That's typically a question that you get uh, if you've confronted somebody's sin or if you've stepped on somebody's toes in one way or another, you get the phrase, who do you think you are? And if you're a real wise guy, you take the time to answer that statement, right? Maybe not always a great idea to try and answer that statement, right? But that's the kind of question that Jesus was getting from this group of people as as he was in the midst of this confrontational moment with them, right? They opposed him, and they're essentially asking him, who do you think you are? That's what they demanded to know. The way it's phrased here is, who do you make yourself out to be, right? Who do you make yourself out to be? So as you can imagine, they were not going to appreciate the answer that Christ gives them. Every culture has its heroes. Every culture, it doesn't matter what what, uh, culture you're in. I'm auditing a a sociology class right now on Fridays, and we've been talking about the cultural heroes that the different cultures tend to have. Every culture has its heroes. So in our culture, uh, we have political heroes. We have military heroes. We have sports heroes. See many of you wearing your Eagles green today. Appreciate that very much. We have social heroes. We have entertainment heroes. We even have personal heroes in the sense that maybe you look back over time and say, you know, my third grade teacher, that's one of my heroes. Or or our next door neighbor who was so kind to us growing up, one of my heroes, or this aunt or this uncle, or one of your parents, or somebody along those lines, right? We have heroes in the sense there are people that we admire. There are people that we look up to. There are people that we try and model our life after. And at the time recorded here in John's Gospel, Many of the Jews would have listed Abraham and the prophets as their heroes. That's who they would have said, these are our heroes. 
So for Jesus to say, as he said in John chapter 8, for him to say that if anyone keeps his word, they would never die. That was to imply, and maybe not to just imply, but to say very directly, that Jesus considered himself and Jesus considered his power greater than that of Abraham, greater than that of the prophets, greater than that of any cultural hero that this group of people could have listed. Each of these people dealt with a natural death at one point in their life. The prophets died naturally. Abraham died naturally. So you have Jesus here confronting this, and you have Jesus saying, listen, you are not as spiritually deep as you like to tell yourself you are, and I'm also about to speak about your heroes in a way that's going to upset you to the core. But Jesus demonstrates in his words here that he who spoke creation into existence, he who created Abraham and the prophets, is greater than his creation. Now, Scripture illustrates elsewhere that Jesus is greater than Abraham and Jesus is greater than the prophets. I'll give you a few samplings uh, from Scripture that show us these things. In Luke chapter 24, verse 27, this is, by the way, after Christ's resurrection, as he's walking along the road with a group of people, with a couple people. It tells us there, Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I want you to think about that statement. It's one of my favorite portions of Scripture because it's actually the key to understanding the Old Testament. If you've ever read through the Old Testament and kind of found yourself scratching your head trying to wonder, you know, what's this talking about? One of the key things that that is useful for us to be asking ourselves is what does this portion of Scripture have to do with Christ? How is this portion of Scripture trying to point my heart to Jesus Christ? Wouldn't you have loved to be part of that conversation as Jesus walked this, you know, the, this, this small cluster of people through the Old Testament Scriptures showing them how from the earliest books of Moses through the prophets that these Scriptures were pointing them to himself? Wouldn't that be interesting to be able to hear that conversation? A few, uh, I guess it was a few years ago, I was walking with a friend of mine. And among the things we were talking about was this portion of Scripture. And I, and I said to him, I said, of the portions of Scripture that I wish I could just listen in on, it just gives us a summary here, right? But I, a conversation I wish I could listen in on or, or hear uh, would be what, what happened here in Luke 24. I wish I could hear that conversation in its entirety. But then the more I was thinking about it, it dawned on me. If you've ever read through the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is essentially this conversation fleshed out. And let me give you a few examples related to the very things that Jesus is speaking about in John 8 that are illustrated in Hebrews. So when you're in, in the book of Hebrews, in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 20, and then we'll jump to chapter 7, verse 1, and chapter 7, verse 7, look at what it says here, and then let's think about it in relation to, the, to Christ being greater than the prophets, Christ being greater than Abraham. It tells us in Hebrews 6, 20, it says, Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you read in the book of Genesis, you see that there's this this king uh, of Salem uh, named Melchizedek. And he's referenced there. And Abraham meets him. And Abraham gives him a tithe of what he has. And then it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, 
and blessed him. So Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And then the scripture tells us in, in Hebrews 7, 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Now again, the scripture tells us that Christ has come as a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. It's illustrating in those statements, and you'll have to go back and take a look at some of these things if you want to study that with more detail, but my point in bringing it up is to show that scripture elaborates on the fact that Christ is superior. In fact, that's the theme of the book of Hebrews. It tells us Christ is superior to Moses. Christ is superior to angels. Here you have an illustration of how Christ is superior to Abraham. But in the context that this is taking place in John chapter 8, our primary scripture for the day, you have a group of people that didn't like the idea of Jesus being elevated above their cultural heroes, above Abraham, above the prophets. Now, let me say this from a personal standpoint. There are plenty of people that I admire. You know, people that I look at and I say, okay, I want that aspect of my life to be like the way they govern their life. They do this with their life, and I'm going to adopt what I have seen in them in my life. I look up to that person. I look up to that man. I look up to that woman. There are people in my life that the Lord's blessed me with the privilege of knowing or observing from afar or sometimes just reading about that I look up to. But I, I find myself in recent years trying to be very careful about my usage of the word hero. And my reason for that is this. The older I get, the more I realize that all my former heroes are very fallible. They may have good attributes that I want to emulate, but they're also human. And they have moments that I look at and I'm like, well, all right, that I wish I didn't know about you. <laughs> I wish I didn't know that part. So don't tell me about that part. Just let me keep looking up to you in regard to this part. But the truth is, every one of us, the, the more you get to know someone, the more likely they are to let you down, wouldn't you say? Especially if you start idolizing them. <laughs> So I've started to dial that back a little bit because I don't want to inadvertently start idolizing some people that I really respect and really look up to. And I've decided, you know what, I'm going to save the word hero for Jesus. He's my hero. There are people I will look to and say, all right, you're a good example in this area. You're someone I respect. You're someone I admire. But I'm going to reserve hero for Jesus. That's been my thought pattern lately. And I bring that up to share that in a personal way, but I also want to ask a follow-up question to you in regard to that very same thing so that we don't walk down the path that these people that Jesus is confronting had, had walked very far down. And the question I want to ask you is this. Is your heart finding a sense of hope and security in Jesus, or are you still at the season where you're trying to find another hero? Is your hope and security being met in Christ? Or are you trying to find another hero? Is Jesus the champion you celebrate? Or is he merely the runner-up to the other champions you celebrate? It's a question I ask myself, so I want to ask you that. Christ is the one we celebrate. Christ is the one we worship. Christ is the hero. Jesus is greater than the prophets. He was making that clear in a context that it wasn't very well received. But you know what? Sometimes we can have hard hearts too that bristle 
against that thought. So he confronts it here. He also shows us a little bit more about who he is by nature. Look at what it tells us in verses 54, 55, and 56, where he illustrates the fact that he and the Father are one. Look at how he phrases it here. It says, Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. Doesn't that statement really stand out? I would be a liar like you. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him. And I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, I don't know what tone of voice Jesus used as he communicated these words, but I envision him in this moment being very clear, being very serious, and being very direct as he spoke. He's not mincing words here. He's not walking around the issue. He's directly handling something head on. And he made it clear that he wasn't there to glorify himself. He was there to glorify the Father. And he also made it clear that the Father would likewise glorify him when you look at the verses uh, prior to this. He made it clear here that he knew the Father, and they did not. He also spoke the truth while they were tangled in a web of deception and lies. But Jesus makes it clear when we look at his words, he makes it clear that he is one with the Father. And when he speaks of the Father in this passage, he speaks of him in a personal way. And he was also demonstrating the truth as he points out the divine glory that, that he and the Father share, that he is one with the Father, that they are one, that they share glory. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit living in perfect union. Now again, let's make these things as personal as we can when we read about them. In his mercy and by his grace, what Christ is doing is he is inviting you and me to live in union with him as well. Now sadly, most of humanity chooses to remain enemies of God. That is the choice that most of humanity is present day, presently making. And even more tragically, there are many believers in this world who still treat their union with Christ as a very casual thing. But I think part of our growth in our walk with Christ is that we begin to look at our union with Christ not as a casual thing, not as kind of a sidebar to our lives, but the governing, the governing principle of our lives, that, that you and I would look at ourselves and we would make decisions on a day-to-day basis where we would say, will I do this or will I not do this? And answer that with, well, does this reflect the fact that I am united with Christ? Or would this be evidence of the fact that I walk apart from Christ? Jesus makes it clear that he and the Father are one. And when you look through the teaching of Scripture, Scripture teaches us that we have the privilege to be united with Christ by faith and then to live as men and women who are united to him in such a way. And then he goes on to say one more thing. He gets really confrontational here, but I think it's fantastic and it's a blessing to be able to read it together. And when you look at verse 57 down to verse 59, it says this. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have seen and have you seen Abraham? 
right? So let me reread that. You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. That is just a fantastic portion of scripture to be able to meditate on. As Jesus just, he lays it all out. He lays it all out. I read a news story earlier this week uh, about a musician that I used to listen to who has, he released a series of tweets. I don't use Twitter too much, but I use it a little bit. And I, I read through this series of tweets. And uh, it was seven reasons why this musician is leaving the music industry. Why he's done now. And one of the things, he's just a few years older than me, so he's in the second half of his 40s. And he said one of the the big reasons is that as he's moved into his later 40s, he's finding it difficult to sell albums, and he's finding it difficult to get concert bookings because he keeps hearing the phrase, you're too old. You're too old. Now, I felt for him because I have a house of four teenagers, and I won't, uh, I won't tell you which of them by name does this to me all the time, Daniel. But <laughs> on a daily basis, that kid tells me, you're too old. You're too old. You're too old. Well, Friday night, I got together with uh, my father and uh, a few of my other family members, and we were walking together. And uh, he stepped off a curb that was about this high, and he made this sound. (laughs) Took the step, and it was, and I said, Dad, that's four inches high. You have to make a for four inches? I was like, what is your deal, man? And I stopped myself, and I said, I'm just going to apologize to you right now, because instantly I just sounded like Daniel sounds to me, to you. So I don't know where that came from, but I guess I can't get mad at him for doing that to me because I literally just did that to you. I I was loving the fact that I was busting on him for that. But you know, this musician that I've listened to for a long time, he keeps, he's frustrated because he keeps hearing, you're too old. You're too old. Now, before you're in your late 40s, that sounds like a significant number. And then the second you get near it or past it, you start realizing, oh no, you're just getting warmed up, right? But he's frustrated, this musician. You're too old, he keeps hearing. Well, in this context, as, the, we're, as we're winding down our look at this here, you have Jesus being told the exact opposite. He's being told the exact opposite here, right? He was told he wasn't old enough. You're not old enough, right? Jesus was speaking about Abraham as if he had seen him, yet Abraham lived 2,000 years prior to these things being written down. Thousands of years prior. And Christ's critics, as they're talking to him, they scoff at him and they say things like, you aren't even 50 yet. You're not even 50 yet. How could you have seen Abraham? Not even 50, right? They're saying, you're not even old enough to have seen Abraham. This doesn't make sense. But if they're scoffing, Jesus drops a verbal bomb on them. And you could tell it was a verbal bomb by the way that they reacted to this. But he looks at them and he says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, they knew what he was getting at when he made that statement. And probably when we look at the I am statements in the Gospel of John, this is, even though we're going to be looking at many more I am statements that he makes, this seems to be kind of like a crescendo statement that he's making pretty early in John's Gospel. Before Abraham was, 
I am. What's Jesus revealing in saying that? Well, he's revealing that he is self-existent. He's revealing that he is eternal in nature. And instead of bowing to worship Jesus as he speaks this truth to them, this group of men pick up stones to stone him. That's their response. They pick up stones to stone him because they believe he's committing blasphemy. They look at this. They can clearly tell that Jesus is is making a statement where he's saying, I am God. And instead of bowing to worship him, they pick up stones to stone him. Let me say this as we finish up this morning. And I'm going to be purposely confrontational as we finish up in the spirit of love that I think Jesus is confrontational when he addresses a lot of these things. Let's start with an easy question. How accepting are we of what Christ has said? So when we look at these statements, when we look at the totality of Christ's teaching that's recorded in the Gospels and elsewhere, um, like in the book of Acts, where he's directly quoted as well, um, how accepting are we of what Christ has said? So right now in your heart, would you, you don't have to answer out loud, but do answer in your heart. Would you say, yeah, generally I consider myself very accepting of what Christ has said. In fact, you know, why, why would I be here worshiping Jesus if I wasn't accepting of what Christ has said? And uh, yeah, if he says it, it goes, right? Would you say that? If, he, if Christ says it, that's it. That's all I need to hear. If he says it, it goes. Obviously, you understand I'm about to test that, right? So when Jesus confronts our idols, when Jesus confronts our heroes, when Jesus confronts our false beliefs, do we thank him? Do we ignore him or do we try and stone him like this group of people did? Do we thank him for confronting us in that respect? Do we ignore him or do we try and stone him? Now, let me ask a few questions to test which way we're responding. And these are all from Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to reference just three things from Matthew 5, and then we're going to abruptly end. In Matthew chapter 5, 20, when Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you agree with him? Or do you try and find a loophole for that definitive statement? How about this? In Matthew 5, 22, when Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Do you agree with him? Or do you try and rationalize why it's okay for you to hold on to your anger? So-and-so offended me. So-and-so is always in the wrong. So-and-so is ignorant. So-and-so roots for a different NFC East team, whatever it may be. In Matthew 5, 28, I'll tell you what, even before I I read this and, and bring us to an end here with this, this is one of the main issues impacting men in particular, not just men in the culture, but men in the church. So hear me as I say this. I say it in a spirit of loving confrontation. In Matthew 5, 28, when Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
Do you agree or do you try to convince yourself that you can still be one with Christ and yet use pornography? When you look at what Christ says here in this portion of Scripture, he teaches us that he is the great I am. And we could be doing one of three things. We'd either be ignoring him. We could be uh, uh, just just trying to stone him in the sense that we're trying to cast him and his words out of our lives and just kind of stop the message from reaching our ears because it's too convicting. Or we could be bowing to him. Mentally, emotionally, spiritually, with our heart, with our life, bowing to him, saying, you are indeed Lord. The posture we take in regard to these things will clearly reveal the depth of our relationship with him, or it will reveal whether we know him at all. He confronts us, but he does so with the idea to jostle us and to help us not to continue to embrace the mindset of death that we once were entrenched in. None of us is perfect. He's perfect. All of us make errors. All of us make mistakes. But he's saying, don't stay stuck in that. I reach my hand out to you. I take your hand. Don't attempt to pull away. Walk with me, Christ invites us to do. Walk with me. There's life in his teaching. If we continue to go our own way, all we're doing is embracing death. But he came to this earth to liberate us from death. He's the remedy to death, and he doesn't desire for you or for me to walk in death any longer. He offers us life, and it's life that he secures because he is the great I am. Before Abraham was, I am, Jesus says. And he offers himself to us in that same spirit. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for the privilege that it is to be able to look at a portion of scripture like this where obviously you were confronting a group of people that felt antagonized by you or insulted by you. And yet you're trying to proclaim the message of life to this group of men whose hearts were bent on ignoring you and they seek to stone you. And yet you were the remedy for the death that they were embracing. Lord, we know that we live... Two millennia after these events took place. We live in a period of time where the issues that these men were facing in their generation are still the issues that we're facing in ours because human nature is human nature. So Lord, we pray that we would be people who choose not to ignore you, but to listen to you. That we wouldn't stone you or try and uh, exclude you from our life and our thinking, but that we would embrace you and welcome you being close to us. That we would bow ourselves to you, that we'd bow our hearts, bow our lives, Just completely submit ourselves over to you and to your lordship, knowing that you love us, knowing that you seek to take every burden that we try and carry upon yourself, knowing that ultimately the penalty for our sin that we were that we were doomed to have to pay. You came to this earth to pay on our behalf so that you could give us new life through faith in you. Lord, we're grateful for the fact that you've chosen to do this. And we pray, Lord, that we would respond to you in such a way that shows our hearts have been transformed and our thinking has been renewed. Thank you, Lord, for confrontational scriptures, because we know that you you poke at us and you confront us. And sometimes you hit us over the head in love. 
because you're not content to see us go in a direction that destroys us. So, Lord, thank you for that kind of tough love. And thank you for displaying it in the portion of your word that we looked at together this morning. We commit ourselves to you, Lord. We thank you for the privilege to know you. And we pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.